Hello and welcome to the podcast from That's Not My Age. I'm Alison Walsh. I'm a journalist, author and blogger and I'd like to invite you to join this conversation. I'll be interviewing lots of brilliant people about life and style and getting older. It's a grown-up guide. Hope you enjoy the episode. Today on the That's Not My Age podcast, we have activist, maker, award-winning maker, and now author, Ursula de Castro. Hello, Ursula. Hello. Thank you for asking me here. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, actually. Um, so, you've you've just had a book published about called Loved Clothes Last and it's about the joy of rewearing and repairing clothes and also how this can be a revolutionary act and it's it feels so timely actually it feels like this is the right moment for this book I enjoyed it because it's got the fashion revolution message about the importance of caring for people and the planet but then also it's got a bit of history of the of clothing manufacture and how we got to where we are and lots of facts and good quotes from people and and then useful tips on how to mend your clothes like darning and patching up your jeans and lots of ideas like that and you're going to be impressed because I'm wearing a pair of socks that I repaired today <laughs> <laughs> that's commitment <laughs> yeah. yes um so so tell us a bit about writing your book is it it take long to research and prepare is it sort of your lifetime's work it's sort of used something this is what you've been interested in for years and years and so yeah. it's all your thoughts and ideas sort of compiled and put together isn't it very much so I mean it, it happened extremely accidentally because in all honesty I sort of written maybe four or five blogs before I endeavored to write a whole book <laughs> and um, I was approached by my agent on Instagram by a DM and I mean to say that I'm not somebody that checks her DM is the understatement of the century <laughs> I really never do but I just saw this one and it just popped at me saying you know I, I'm, I'm an agent and I'm looking for somebody with whom to write you know for somebody to write a book on mending and I have to be completely honest I'm really not very good at mending at all but of course, I know people that are brilliant at it. And above all, I really understand the importance of mending. And so I just thought, okay, well, there you go. I'm going to jump on this one. I'm going to say yes. And then um, see if, if I can turn the book around. And so I, I went and met her and I said, I, I can do you a how-to, but there are way better how-tos than any how-to I could possibly do myself. There are way better menders than me. But I can do a why-to. I know that I can convince people that mending clothes is a way of mending systems and that looking at our own wardrobe as a starting point is a joyous starting point to make towards becoming more involved in this movement and in the understanding that our clothes have a profound impact on the people who make them, on ourselves and on the environment that we all share. So it's it's kind of a uh, a way of trying, as you say, to to somehow explain why it's so important. Because I do believe that unless we understand why things need to change, we won't be so committed to changing them. And that, you know, it's often not about going on a crash diet. 
but about finding those habits that are completely functional to your life and completely functional to your principles. And those are the ones you're likely to continue and, and therefore provide, you know, change your habits. I agree. It is a lifestyle, isn't it? Rather than, like you said, rather than just like a quick fix, it's, it's got to be something yeah. that you, you take on. And as a lifestyle, it's not just taking it on yourself, but it's also understanding your limitations. I mean, if, like me, you're not that great at mending, then there are so many other things that you can do. And that would be, you know, to speak truth to power, to ensure that, you know, you talk about mending or you organize mending sessions in your community, be it your kid's school or your gym or your church or your local library. And so it, it's about what you can do to your own clothes personally, but it's also about understanding that repairing and eventually reparations to people and planet is what really what we're talking about. I know, because I read somewhere that apparently 60% of people in the UK can't sew a button on. Yeah. And I feel like, wow, uh, that's quite a lot. Of, I mean, I'm like you, I'm not brilliant at mending, but I can sew a button on and I can yeah. thread a needle just about them. I think I might need to get my eyes tested. Um, <laughs> but it's sort of a, those are sort of life skills, aren't they? It's really important that kind of people just know how to do sort of simple basic things like that and the I think a couple of years ago the government did release a sort of make do and mem report or something encouraging schools to sort of mm. teach the joy of mending or something like that but that's probably gone out of the window with the pandemic I don't know I mean do you well, know the whole of the e well the e EAC was actually the other way around I mean the environmental um audit committee that was started by MP Mary Cray when she was still, you know, a, a member of parliament. That was a series, a very serious, you know, gathering of evidence and uh, reporting on the behavior of, of fashion brands, in particular cheap fashion brands in the UK, because obviously the, you know, the, the, the ramification of, of the UK design uh, fashion uh, supply chains are global. And yet none of the recommendations were ever taken on by the government. And that one of them included reintroducing, um, you know, mending and sewing into the curricula. So it's not that it's off the curricula it, it's still there if teachers want to to implement it but the reality is that no one knows how to do it so there isn't the the appetite there isn't the culture for it um, and that is you know very much what also I, I, I and, and the book and, and fashion revolution talks about is this you know, it's not necessarily going back because there's, you know, plenty of societies where mending is still, mending, repairing, bespoke making is still massive in India, Myanmar, Hong Kong. I mean, you know, in Italy, even though it's decreased, it's still very much, you know, something within the community. But we know that in Germany, for instance, there's less and less seamstresses, less and less cobblers, definitely the same in the UK. So it's about learning from each other. You know, there are places where this is still thriving. Um, I consider it to be total common sense for it to thrive. So it's also for us to let go of our patronizing view that what we do is what's happening all over the world. And, you know, those, you know, the assumptions that come from that and actually look around and see other cultures that are doing things better and that we can learn from. We don't have to export ideas and designers all the time. We can we can import an awful lot of innovation from places that are, you know, that, that are continuing to do such practices. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame because the, the report that you were talking about, that was the one, I think, that included... There was going to be a one 
happy charge on garments yeah. to, and then the money would fund recycling schemes and ban incinerating and all these ideas that you know that are brilliant. And then and that was rejected as well by the yeah. government. And yeah, well, there are laws happening in France, the 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 loi de vigilance in Europe, the right to repair. Um, you know, more stringent regulations are certainly on the cards and on the tables, um, but. At this point in time, not in the UK. No, no. It's a shame, isn't it? Because it does feel it does feel like it needs legislation for things to really move. There needs to be some sort of legislation, do you think? Definitely, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, we're looking at an industry that is wildly unregulated, unlike many other industries that somehow have very similar supply chains, such as food and beauty. You know, our clothes are drenched in chemicals and yet we have no visibility over what those substances actually are. Mm -hmm. We know that some are actually banned in the EU but still present in some of our clothes. Um, you know, we don't place the importance of provenance on the materials that make our clothes either, uh, whether they come from extracting, you know, uh, oil or whether they are from, you know, uh, agriculture or deforestation, such as cellulosic fibers. I mean, we just don't have to have those informations. But for us as customers and particularly citizens, these are very important missing pieces of the puzzle in order to care for our clothes. I mean, we now know after extensive media coverage that each time we wash something made of polyester or recycled polyester, it will release millions of microfibers. These microfibers have been found at the bottom of the ocean, at the top of Mount Everest. And yet, if we knew that, you know, in our everyday shopping habits, we could think of maybe not buying polyester underpants that we would have to wash daily, but instead maybe a, an overcoat that we can treat differently, wash less frequently, sponge clean, brush clean. So, you know, what's the first thing that you do when you buy a pot of yogurt is that you look at the cell by date, whether it has any harmful ingredients like colorants, um, and you look at the, you know, how long it can be refrigerated for. We do need to have that level of visibility, whether it's on a label or whether it's on a, you know, um, via uh, online, mm. you know, barcode or what. We do have to understand what's in our clothes because the properties that our clothes are made of vastly affects the way that we, we then take care of them. Yeah, I like your, actually in the book, there's a love checklist towards <laughs> the back. And I really like that because it sort of asks questions, it's the questions that you should ask before you buy something. Do, do I know who made it? Did I check the label? Where's it from? And I quite liked, and I hadn't thought about this, do I love it enough to repair it? And then finally, what will I do at the end of its life? And that's something I've you know, never asked myself. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's, I mean, I do try and keep clothes for a long time, but I've never really, I mean, I, well, the answer to that would be I would give it to the charity shop, but I think that's a really good question to ask yourself, isn't it? Well, I, I've just, you know, I posted something on Instagram yesterday um, around why are we um, collectively saying that fast fashion is so badly made that it doesn't 
merit any repairs because I find that incredibly destructive. Mm. Um, you know, we're raising generations of kids who are buying fast fashion to actually think, well, there's nothing I can do with it at the end. And the reality is that if we all decided that fast fashion wasn't badly made, but simply made, we would yeah. also understand that it's simple to repair. I mean, in my book, I give all sorts of clues you know when you go and buy something turn it inside out I mean we have to presume that something that costs three pounds is not going to have the attention of something that used to cost you know 30 pounds 20 years ago or so we need to we need to inspect our clothing you know you turn it the other way around turn it inside out if there's a piece of thread popping pull it you know if it unravels don't buy it check mm. the next one but you know on on that buttons thing that you were saying before um i often find that machined buttons in cheap pieces are not properly finished mm. and it literally would take me about two minutes just to finish them at the end that would secure those buttons that would otherwise leave my shirt in a question of weeks a five minute intervention from me and that knowledge will keep those buttons steady on for years same as if they were sewn on a designer shirt so why are we buying things that we know from the start we are ready to dispose of as soon as we don't want them anymore let alone need them what i propose we do is that we buy with love and respect everything that we buy and that if everybody spend a long time either mending themselves or ensuring that there was mending in the community facilitating mending in the community pledging and bombarding precisely those brands that make cheap clothing and therefore don't pay the full cost to people or planet. They should be the ones to provide cheap and affordable mending stations in their flagship stores to the very least available to all. So it is a, it is a collective action, mm. that of repairing our clothes. And, you know, you might think, that you picking up a dropped hem is a drop in the ocean. But a hundred thousand teenagers picking up their dropped hem and going to boohoo pretty little things and saying, I'd rather pick up my dropped hem than buy another one because this is my skirt and I like it, um, would give a very clear message that mm. we don't want more, but we want better. I believe that that would have a positive effect on supply chain workers who potentially would no longer be paid by the hour, sorry, no longer be paid by the piece but be paid by the hour instead that would allow better quality more time to make the clothes because we do know that so many clothes that are made will never even reach the shop floor i mean they're destined for landfill the second that they are conceived because of overproduction so mending um, clothes slows down the system and ultimately this is a very positive thing that we can do as citizens of the world yeah, I like that. I like the idea of mending stations in shops. I think, yeah, I think it would be good, it, you know, if people, as Patty Smith says, people have the power. So if kind of all those teenagers do go to Boohoo and say, yeah, sort it out, then yeah. maybe... But if you had the mending in H&M, it would very much change the, you know, that aesthetic alone would validate the concept of mending globally. You know, so in places where they already do it. But I mean, you know, again, it, we have to look at it also in a generous way, providing jobs for local seamstresses, educating kids on how clothes are made, because, you know, to have something mended, you have to understand it broke in the first place and how. Mm. So, you know, culture around clothing, understanding our clothing, how they're made, 
um, in order to maintain them. That's really the the what I try to advocate. Mm. I like what you said also. You said something about we treat our clothes like shit and then complain that they're badly made. It's sort of... Yeah, this was yesterday's post <laughs> on Instagram. But I have it to be brilliant. honest with you, I've not experienced anything like this post before. Um, I've had, I would say, 99% of, of responses telling me, you know, this is this is incredible, this is per- perspective changing. And then, of course, there are people that insist on, you know, and quite rightly, that, you know, a lot of fast fashion is, is, is badly made. I did intend to provoke. Um, but, you know, we are here to provoke in order mm. to change the status quo and change the way that people think. And, of course, there is never 100%. Of course, I'm not saying that 100% of um, fast fashion or cheap fashion is... Uh, simply made. I'm very, very aware that there is a, a huge quantity that is as a, so simply made to be borderline bad. Yeah. But the reality is, A, um, you can have a hand at mending and making it better. And, you know, two, it's the attitude that matters at this point in time. And to me, the idea that we think, you know, we can treat our clothes, you know, wash them whenever we feel like it, keep them, you know, I'm very messy, to be honest, you know, I have floored robe, chaired robe, wardrobe, you know, I'm not a tidy person. I, I, so if I can look after my clothes, I promise you anyone can. But it's that mentality of the only antidote to a throwaway society is to keep, you know, everything I buy, I buy to keep. Everything I've already bought before I was as conscious potentially as I am now, I'm choosing to keep. And and that's a, that's just a mentality that comes with wanting to use your clothes as your revolutionary act. Mm. I like what you said also about it. Kind it is if you view it in that way as being cheap and throwaway and badly made, you you're sort of disrespecting the workers who are making it. Yes, I mean that's something that was very eye opening in working you know, in Fashion Revolution, because we did a wonderful project a few years ago called the Garment Worker Diaries, where we worked with a microfinancing opportunity and we analysed the wages of um, a group of selected garment workers in Bangladesh, Bangalore and um, Cambodia. And to be honest, uh, when they were interviewed by the researchers uh, on, on, on their work, we, we did find an, an awful lot of pride and an awful lot of thinking that they were making beautiful clothes that were worn by beautiful people. You know, that, that, that it's, it's everybody has to have dignity and pride in their job, mm. even, if, if, even if they're struggling. We're helping, hopefully, to, to create awareness around the struggle. But that also, to me, means that we have to respect the work. And to say in one hand, um, I, I, you know, I bring attention to your cause, I, I, I fight with you, but at the same time to say that most of the outputs that come from that are of inferior quality, I find um, unpolite. Mm. Um, I prefer to honour that work by saying, as it is, you know, that it's potentially simpler, that, that it's, you know, even arguably, you know, that the premium labels are nowhere near as, as, as well-made as they were once were, mm. and they're comparable 100% in quality to, to the cheapest of, of, of the cheap. And, you know, my other point goes for the people who wear, who can't afford to buy anything but cheap clothes. Um, again, I find it unpolite to... Um, to say you're wearing really badly made clothes 
Um, and when there is, you know, and not invite them to think that those clothes have value and therefore ignite in them the, the, you know, the desire to repair. Many of these people are very, very young. And so they can't afford to buy better. And they should, but they can afford to take the time to either mend or find somebody that can help them do it or do it for them. Can I ask you about your label from somewhere, which yeah. was award-winning, award-winning sustainable label, ahead of the curve, I think, because you were upcycling clothes and I think using offcuts and end of rolls yeah. from Italian factories. In, it was like in the 1990s. Yeah, um, it started in the end of the 90s and we, we remained alive until 2014. Um, really interesting, completely the journey that moved me. So I, I really am a creative. I start as a creative and it was a creative process that led me to understand the impact of the fashion industry, in my case, with waste. And, um, you know, completely pioneering, totally to the detriment of the brand, because when you're 20 years too soon, it's really <laughs> not very good for business, I have to be honest. But um, nevertheless, I, I am reaping huge satisfactions now, because not only my method, which was, um, you know, experimented over a period of 20 years, we produced in several different countries, in several different ways, from the super unique to the utterly reproducible. So the methods that I, you know, that we created with From Somewhere is very useful to other upcyclists now. And I mentor so many young upcyclists at the moment, globally, and I have done for years. And so to be able to pass this wisdom on, but have absolutely zero, nothing ever to do with sales ever again, <laughs> I tell you, it's ideal. <laughs> I love clothes. I, no can, you know, I love design. <laughs> but bloody hell, did I hate selling more than anything. So it suits me fine. So how did fashion revolution start? So Fashion Revolution starts um, very much as a result of the Rana Plaza disaster in 2013. So I was at that time founder and curator of Aesthetica at London Fashion Week, which was the British Fashion Council sustainable area, in a very fertile moment in the UK for sustainability. I mean, those were the years really that, you know, centre of sustainable fashion, ethical fashion forum, uh, sustainable angle. I mean, many of those organizations were beginning to be formed around that time. And when Rana Plaza happened, you know, the, the, the frustration was was palpable. We'd all somehow predicted that such mm. a disaster would was inevitable. Um, the actual name and idea was from Carrie Summers, who was at the time one of our aesthetica designers. And she literally, she had a bath. Um, we now, as in, in the team, say, Carrie, go have a bath. It's, it's if you get such amazing ideas. But she <laughs> called me straight away and said, okay, Let's do something, you know, let's do a fashion revolution, um, you know, next year, you know, in for the, you know, for the Rana Plaza disaster. And the minute we talked, we knew that we weren't going to do some commemorative event, that neither of us wanted an event, that we wanted something that commemorated, you know, but sort of bottom up rather than top down. And, you know, to be honest, we put together the team from most of the people that we'd worked with and talked with, you know, in the Aesthetica corridors. Mm. And it, in a really, really short time, we, you know, at the time we were just on Twitter, 
But, you know, globally, um, other countries, people from countries said, you know, can I be the coordinator in this country? Can I do fashion revolution in my country? So we expanded quite rapidly, very spontaneously. And I guess we've been growing ever since. We are now in 90 countries. We're getting ready for our next Fashion Revolution Week, which is from the 19th to the 25th of April. And it's been, you know, it's been an incredible, incredible journey. We, you know, we talk to policy, academia, people, designers, supply chain. So it's it's a very it's been a very enriching journey. But you know, as we are seeing now with COVID, sometimes the biggest awareness comes from a catastrophe, from a disaster, and that definitely was the the origin. I'm assuming that fashion revolution last year and this year is going to be like completely online. So can you tell us what you have planned for it? Yeah, I mean, so for us, online is like mummy. Uh, we started as an online campaign. So, and in fact, we were one of the very first 100% open sourced campaigns. So, from the very first year, that was 2014, that we kind of came to live. All of our branding and, you know, assets and all that is, is available for all to download. And the encouragement to use it to create events when, you know, before COVID, we had, you know, thousands of events happening globally because people would just start them up, you know, make a fashion revolution event. But I have to be honest that the pivot online was not complicated because being primarily an online campaign, mm. we we were used to this kind of campaign. This is how we communicate with each other. As I said, we have 92, uh, you know, over, you know, 92 country coordinators and we speak to each other on Zoom and always have. We as a team have always worked remotely from inception. So how we communicate to each other is 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 online. So for us, it was an incredibly natural transition. Of course, it's been brilliant in many ways because it has absolutely um, increased the amount of visibility that we've you know that we have and but above all the amount of visibility that we can provide for others mm. um, one of our initiative fashion open studio is all about emerging designers and online has really brought some of our you know cohorts from you know zimbabwe to argentina way more for you know more to the forefront than they would have ever been um, with smaller isolated local events so it's worked for us very well um, this year, we are somehow repeating on a theme that's been a bit of a perennial for us, and that's the interdependentness between people and planet. This is something that we have been, you know, really communicating since 2017. Um, but somehow with, with COVID and the recent conversations, I think it, it's become more understood that we can't have one without the other, unless we are equally invested mm. in each other, we won't be equally invested in the survival and the, you know, the conservation of our planet. Fashion revolutions, you know, theory of change and sort of main point is that we believe in a fashion industry that conserves and restores the environment and values people mm. over profit and growth. So we will be talking about this with some very interesting partners this year. We're partnering with the Plastic Pollution Coalition, with Canopy, with the World Fair Trade Organization, with Simri. So the topics will be around, you know, the planet and the, the, the respect between uh, people, cultural appropriation, the impact of uh, chemicals and plastic on our supply chain, 
both the one before and the one that we are responsible for as as, as consumers. So yes, that's going to be fashion revolution. It will be big yeah. and, and very <laughs> exciting. So I hope you can all. I will be joining. Join I will be joining you. It sounds fantastic. Do you think? Just also, you mentioned the pandemic, and I just wondered because there's all this talk about causing a massive reset of people's attitudes towards fast fashion or towards like buy just buying new stuff. Really, not necessarily always fast fashion, but that kind of consumerism that's sort of endless, sort of like continually buying new. Um, and people have had to stop and think and look in their wardrobes and think, well, actually, I've got loads of clothes I don't really need anymore. I'll just wear these. Um, and we're not going anywhere. So do you think this reset is permanent, or do you think that when we come out of lockdown, people will start shopping again when they can? I think we will be told to start shopping again big time. And mm. I think that we will have to ask the question, okay, fine, brilliant, but who is this, who is my money going to? Mm. I mean, you know, we have seen it so blatantly during COVID, you know, fashion, fast fashion, and, and, and not just fast fashion, but fashion brand owner or, you know, uh, making a mint online while garment workers yeah. going unpaid, you know, they're owed billions of pounds. We've seen the brilliant pay up campaign and how much visibility that, you know, the, the, the remake uh, our world team uh, they managed to achieve with the pay up campaign which you know i fully we fully supported so i think it's going to be in stages i believe there's going to be as always you know the the kind of the the excess that comes after the restriction mm. and i hope that we will uh, be able to refrain ourselves because of the information that we've received obviously you know some people will many won't but I see it as a, you know, a double-pronged approach in the sense I see that citizens have an opportunity to rethink their wardrobe and above all to rethink the concept of new. I mean, for instance, I recently had a pair of denim that I wasn't really wearing anymore. I sent them over to a wonderful UK designer. They embroidered all over and the pair of denim came back to me. That's new. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's old, but it's new. If you go deep, deep, deep inside your wardrobe and you take away all the pieces that you never wear and you hide them under your bed in a bag for five years, when you reopen that bag, those pieces will feel completely new. You will have forgotten all about them. You will have different ways in which you feel like styling them. If you go and take your jumper that has just, you know, broken or moth-holed and you follow a simple tutorial on darning or you ask your best friend who's become obsessed with darning recently if she could actually take a look at your clothes, that piece will be new at the end of it. So it, it, that too is, is what we have an opportunity to change our mindset and look at clothes differently. But brands have an obligation to make things better because brands are the ones that will find themselves with masses of inventory that's unsold stock, both in their suppliers and in their stores. Uh, brands are the ones that have been yet again exposed for an unfair distribution of their profits throughout their supply chains. So, and brands have been scrutinized over this period. So I hope that there are more people that will interpret this kind of 
period of change, as I said, not just about mending our clothes, but actually be demanding, be a pain in the neck. Mm. Keep asking, keep asking who made my clothes, keep asking what's in my clothes, keep proclaiming that loved clothes last, keep longevity in mind. And, you know, if, if people do that, then brands inevitably will have to reconsider. And their obligation is also to create new job opportunities at the end of all of this. And these can happen from the circular economy and from circular thinking. You know, we could be having all sorts of different um, job descriptions within factories, within brands. You know, imagine a creative waste engineer, a, you know, a, a return re-uploader. So these are the sort of, you know, the mentality that I feel brands need to develop in order to creatively deal with stock and ethically deal with work. Like you said, the circular economy that rather than, you know, it goes straight into landfill, it actually comes back to the brands and they deal with it. Yeah. It's a, it's a brilliant idea. Well, they greenwash so much. Here's yeah. something that wouldn't be a greenwash, would be so, you know, and so simple to make. But of course, you know, which brand is going to put their hand up and say, right, okay, I'm happy to slow down, um, not the mainstreams. <laughs> no, no, you're right. And greenwashing is so easy, isn't it? And it's really hard to find out, like, you know, sort of if you're looking at stuff, a brand online, and you look at their green policy or, environment, you know, sustainability pledge or whatever it is, it's really hard to know, you know, exactly what they're doing and if they are, you know, it's easy to sort of say stuff online, but, you know, the reality can be quite different, can't it? Yeah, but we need, you know, we need a culture of scrutiny. I, I think that this is incredibly important, that, you know, we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily trust the brand Greenwash, but we can unravel it. I mean, marketing is a language. Mm. We can learn it. If you take the same time that you would take to find the perfect skirt that fit your size, if you start looking for products that fit your principles, you'll be, you know, following all sorts of other journeys. You know, I mean, we publish the Fashion Transparency Index, which is everything but a shopping guide. But it does provide comparable information on what brands disclose. So, mm. you know, it is also about... You know, so just as we need to think about fast fashion as something that we can all mend, we also need to think as these topics as something that we can all digest. If we hide mm. behind the it's too complicated, then, you know, we're very justified for procrastinating until God knows when. But if you think, well, actually, no, that's relatively simple. You know, a brand is telling me that they're doing this. Can I measure it? Is there somewhere that I compare, that I can compare? And this information is, you know, it is really quite widely available right now. There are apps for almost everything. And it, it is about, you know, investigating and finding the time and learning. You know, you need to learn. You know, it's mm. not going to be easy to begin with. But, you know, if you practice, as with everything else, eventually you, you will know how to you know, how, how to find your clues. And, and this is something that I always say. I am asked almost daily whether I think that a certain brand is greenwashing or are those claims valid and my reply remains unchanged you know my opinion is actually really quite irrelevant what matters is that you develop yours 
because mine comes from years of, of prodding and but also dictated by my interests you know I'm more likely to to research something that talks about waste because that's something I I'm interested in I understand mm. and so there's a lot of factors in my judgment over whether a brand is you know perfect Pathetically greenwashing, or whether there is a potential that from that something actually really positive could start, and that can only happen with your own personal knowledge, your own personal life choices, and you know. So navigate search engines from from your you know your gut instinct and follow mm. your interests, but marry the two. You know, marry your the time you spend looking, you know, and shopping for for also finding out more. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Looking for products to fit your principles. I like it. I like also what you said in your book. It, it's something I believe as well. We all love fashion and, and it is important. And you say it's not frivolous. Clothes are at the center of our lives, marking our rituals, representing identity, profession, rank and status. But what we wear has profound social implications too. I love that kind of thinking about, you know, in that way. Well, I think, you know, that the, the reality with with clothing is that it's a little bit like food. You know, you may not be um, interested in gourmet fashion, but you nevertheless have to eat. And it's the same with clothes. You know, you may not be interested in fashion. Sorry, you may not be interested in gourmet food. Did I say food or fashion before? I'm getting confused. But you may not be interested in, in, in the actual fashion and the fashion season and the designers, but you still have to wear clothes that we have in common with nearly 100% of the population. So provided you you have an understanding that this is a humongous industry, that it's not the frivolity of an article in Vogue magazine or, you know, the, the, the crazy designer outfits we see during the catwalks. This is way more serious than that. This is a massive global industry that affects other massive global industries from agriculture to communication. It's one of the most exploitative, one of the most polluting. And therefore, to hide behind, oh, it's only fashion, it's only clothes, will only really delay um, actually um, being a part, you know, a, a much more conscious part of that change. So, you know, for me, fashion is the history, the female, the, the, you know, the whole long story. But for everyone that wears clothes, you are having an impact. And I kind of, I, I agree with you that we should buy less, take better care of clothes, keep them longer. So I wanted to ask you, what's the oldest item of clothing you have? Whew. Oh, gosh, no, the oldest would be something inherited from my grandmother. So I do have things from, you know, the 30s um, onwards. But um, so I'm not a good person to ask because I, I really do <laughs> have very, very old clothes. I mean, my famous example are my absolutely 100% most worn shoes that come from inherited. They were my grandmother's in the late 30s and 40s. My mother and my aunt both wore them. Particularly in the seventies, they you know, and 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 um, when the forties were back in fashion in the seventies, and then I got them at some point in the eighties, and I've been wearing them ever since. I mean, it does take maintenance. I take them to the cobblers, and I you know I put the, the rugs inside them to keep them in shape. And but so I I do have some very very old clothes, but I also have some very new clothes. You know, I just 
treated myself to this beautiful skirt from one of our fashion open studio designers in India. And, you know, I saw it on, on Instagram, a nanosecond to knew that I wanted that skirt and then six months of waiting for it to be made. So it's it's the old and the new. It's the cocktail. You know, my, my really does contain a little bit of everything. And can you can you tell us any brands that you I was going to say, what brands do you buy or you would recommend? Well, it's, it's, you know, the list would be too long for me to actually, uh, you know, there are so many. So I guess um, I have two ways of, of buying. I always try and support emerging talent. And I think that this is something that people really can do, especially women our age. You know, mm. it's not just about the one that's completely local to you. At this day and age, you know, if you were to have a piece commissioned like I did in India and opt for it to be slowly sent... Um, you, you are, you know, the, the, the cost of that transport, I feel, would be overrun by, um, you know, the, the beauty of giving work to a, a, an art, a local communal, you know, artisanal community and, and so on and so forth. So I feel that women who can afford to should support emerging talents. And so our Fashion Open Studio is a, it's on, on Instagram is actually Fashion Open Studio is a really good place to find out. Great, we can. I can link to that in the in the. Yeah, place. that'd be so everyone, brilliant. Everyone can go and have a look. Yes, I mean, yeah. some of them are really well known. You know, the the Christopher Rayburn, the Bethany Williams of this world in the UK, they're well known. But you know, we do have that ilk um, of designers from all over the world, and many of them they're just on their first steps. So you know, they will really appreciate your custom, and they will answer all your questions when it comes to you wanting to know who made their clothes. So this is, you know, obviously, I am privileged in the sense that. Some of these designers I've had the honor to, to mentor for years. And so I, I do get, you know, a, a hefty discount when I do choose to buy. So I'm sure that that facilitates my purchasing. But, you know, I'm also a great believer on torture. As I said, you know, I, I will wait for something for, for months, you know, really check whether I want it, cheap or expensive, whatever it is. So that's, that's what I would do. And again, you know, my my tip for, for buying better isn't necessarily to focus on the mainstream, but to be a little bit more adventurous and to focus on on something a little bit more unexpected, a new designer and, and invest in that. I was once a young emerging, well I wasn't that young, but I certainly was emerging. Um <laughs> I guess I was young, you know, it was it was, you know, over twenty years ago. So and my relationship with my customers was incredibly important for me as a designer. I had a shop on the Portobello Road. And when I saw customers coming in and trying my clothes on and, you know, buying from me, of course I listened to what they wanted next. Of course our conversation was pivotal. You know, if they turned around and said, oh, my God, I would love this piece, but, you know, when I wear it, I feel this or I feel that. Of course I would take those comments into you know my, my design process it's 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 a beautiful relationship and it's beautiful to support emerging talents and they will let you know they will have sample sales they will have defect pieces that are still you know amazing you won't even notice where the defect is you know there's there's so many ways that one can support so that would be my first port of call um, I'm always slightly reluctant to um, you know make the names of of the big brands, but we do know the usual suspects that are doing better than others. And I would, you know, I would, you know, err on the side of cautious and go for the ones that are well-established names. And as again, when in doubt over you thinking if a brand is greenwashing, 
or not. Just give it those, you know, 30 minutes of your time and and develop your your own core set of, of beliefs and opinions on, on what they're doing. And that will really facilitate um, understanding where you want to buy and who you want to buy from. Do you make any of your own clothes? Not anymore. And again, I've not been done. I've not been doing this for years because... So for me, upcycling was precisely that. It was getting incredibly beautiful fabrics at zero or very, very little cost in order to be able to afford exquisite uh, manufacturing. So I was nowhere near ever as good as my seamstresses. So I gave up a long time ago, but I do have a trick. Um, and that is that I actually love broken clothes. I always have since I was little. It's an aesthetic that probably it's because I was, you know, growing up and seeing punks. But I often make this um, association that we've been buying pre-distressed denim for 20 years. You know, this is chemically distressed, distressed by machine. And the more it's torn, the more we wear it. Why do we only allow denim to be broken? Why not extend that favor to, you know, a beautiful dress or a jumper? My most elegant evening dress is 100% torn to pieces. I like the idea, though. It's sort of like you said, I mean, denim gets better with age, doesn't it? We should have that philosophy right across. Well, denim is for me, I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book on denim, and that's because, you know, to pay somebody very little, to make it look like you've been wrestling with dogs every day or that you daily douse yourself in acid, because that's what distressed, fake distressed denim looks like, I do find it really a, a contradiction in terms, yeah. to be honest. I mean, you know, what kind of a life you're paying for somebody to make it look like you've had a life, but what mm. kind of a life are you protecting? <laughs> I think it's much better to buy the kind of unwashed and then keep them for years and then they kind of fade and yeah. grow I mean, we'll to buy fit them you. Hand. Yeah. If you want a pair of broken denim, I mean, you know, have, have at least somebody else have, have broken them. But, you know, denim is a really resilient fibre to actually use all of these chemicals in order to make it the opposite of what it was supposed to be in the first place is completely mm. ridiculous. Yeah, agree, agree. And where do you where do you shop for vintage? Picking your brains now. Uh, okay, no, for vintage, <laughs> no, for vintage, I do have a an absolute. I mean, I I do buy a, a, an awful lot of vintage. I am extremely lucky. I live in South London. There is the most one of the most beautiful vintage stories called Chinchi, which is C E N C I. They're in West Norwood. And it's by far the most, I mean, you know, it, that's where my, you know, lots of the little stories of fashion history comes from talking to Massimo and Didi. Um, that's where many, many designers go to scour for patterns, uh, you know, vintage patterns or inspiration. So, I mean, and, and as I, I've been extremely lucky to live very close to them for a long, long time. I knew them before. Um, so it's on Knights Hill. And if you, there's a post office in Knights Hill, there's a little muse, like a little shoe, shoe what's it called? Um, horseshoe type, round little teeny muse. And Chenchi, yeah. it says it's open by appointment, but they're always there. And um, it, 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 they're actually on Instagram as well. Let me so you can find them there. I'm going to find them. It's C E N C I. Let me see the full. Is it Chenchi Vintage? Chenchi, which is C E N C I underscore Vintage. I mean, they they really are the the bee's knees. I mean, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a job going shopping there because they've got so much stuff. You really need to you know spend your time um, hunting. 
Fantastic. Well, I can't wait till everything opens up. I'm going to cycle over there. And so I'm exhausted. How tired are you? I am really exhausted, actually, at the minute. So how tired are you? Hi, I'm pretty exhausted. I am pretty exhausted. I mean, I have become incredibly vocal about the beauty of going through the menopause. But the one thing that I would say, mm, I'm not so sure is that beautiful is, you know, the, the sort of the bad sleep. So I am quite exhausted. I'm quite exhausted with, with excitement um, because of all of the, you know, I wasn't expecting the book to be quite so interesting to quite so many people. So I'm also exhausted a little bit about that. But I'm also a grandmother every Monday. And I tell you, I've forgotten Yay. what it's like to have a one and a half year old you know, for a whole day. So, yeah, pretty exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing any events around your book launch or, you know, kind of online or anything? I'm doing one on, with the VNA. Um, I think it's it's probably next week. You're now making me have a complete panic attack that I've missed it, forgotten about it. That's probably <laughs> me. But I'm going to double check. I'm pretty sure they would have felt, told me if I'd missed it. I think they would have been yeah, in touch but with you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's next week, I think. But obviously, ah. you know, um, without with, with COVID and all that. But to be honest with you, if I had done an event, I would have probably done it in my local bookstore in, you know, either, you know, mm. either Peckham or, 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 or Camberwell. I will definitely let you know in case we do go ahead later on in the year. Yes, definitely. And you just mentioned briefly menopause. So how do you feel about getting older? I'm content with getting older. What I am pissed off is the fact that I've been told a whole load of lies around it. And so I have to find that I'm navigating a whole new truth that I wasn't expecting. And, you know, as a mother of, of three daughters, I'm very keen to let them know that actually it's a very empowering period and in your life you know it, it's a very pivotal moment I've never felt uh, more confident I, I know that I look or sound confident and because I am somebody who's somehow in the public eye people tend to think that I am but I'm not I'm very insecure and and so to actually finally be at peace with what I want to do the person that I have become that's given me um, a, a massive strength and I am, you know, finding that my relationship with other women is very powerful and very beautiful for some reason. I find that I am accosted by young uh, women that want my advice and I sort of feel that I am uh, somehow uh, less, I wouldn't say threatening is not the word I'm looking for, but I'm, I'm not competition. You know, I am what I am. I am the woman that I am. I am a happily married woman with all of my children, my grandchildren, my life, my work. And it feels like I've got an awful lot to give still at this stage. Oh, well, that's fantastic. But I do sweat a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. Yes. I had to change my deodorant recently because I just sort of felt like it wasn't working anymore. <laughs> you know, I do have a tip. It's the simplest tip. In the I mean, it may be that I'm towards the, 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 the finishing end, so maybe it's nearly over. But I'm not joking. For me, a glass of water with a full lemon squeezed in every morning makes the whole difference to the sweating to all sorts of other symptoms that perhaps we won't mention but you know it, it's it's been it somehow rebalances the ph and i if i don't have my lemon for a week i will notice a difference so i do suggest that i'm not a particular you know, i take my vitamins and all that i eat very healthy 
So I do help myself. But this lemon thing has been quite life-changing for me. I've been doing it for a couple of years. Oh, well, I might try that. What are you reading right now? So right now, this minute, I'm not reading very much because I am working too much. I am a voracious reader. Um, and so I like to sit down and read for a good few hours on a regular basis. So I've got a couple of books that I've stacked. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading Yag Yesi, the the, the continuation the second book after Homegoing, which was one of my favorite books ever. I've just finished reading, um, which I loved, uh, Bernardine Evaristo, Girl Woman Another. Um, I finished, as I said, it's, it's a couple of months now that I've not, not really read profusely. Um, and I've just finished, the only type of book that I can read when I'm working a lot is more um, history books. So I've read a very interesting book about um, women um, at the time of uh, Caterina de Medici, de Medici in, in, in France. So at the time of the Huguenots and, and, and all of that. So, but I, as I said, I, I really, I, I really, really do read an awful lot. And, um, but I do need concentration. Today, though, however, I'm incredibly excited because I found a book of mine that I, a book of poem by my favorite poet, Anna Akhmatova. And I lost this book for 25 years, and I've only just managed to find exactly the edition that I lost 25 years ago, and I'm getting it back. Oh, amazing. But yeah, books play a huge part in my life. And I read, the, I read and enjoyed Bernadine Evaristo's book, and then I went and read another one of her books from a few years ago, Mr. Loverman, which I also really enjoy though i can highly recommend that okay i'm gonna dig back the catalog as soon as i as soon as i, as I said the other thing with writing is because with reading is because i'm i'm just beginning now to think okay so I, I can see that my first book was you know so far has been well received so maybe there is hope that i might write another one so i'm putting a lot of brain into thinking what my second book looked like and i'm so inconfident with writing that i'm terrified of reading very good writers in case should i in case i copy them accidentally i don't know what mine is yet i've only written one book so i need to be really careful and read, read very neutral things to begin with oh it is quite full-on though isn't it writing a book it's sort of it's a lot of hard work yeah i mean i had only four months in which to do it so it was incredibly full-on incredibly full-on i had help um, you know, my my uh, our then Fashion Revolution content manager helped me a lot with the research, and my daughter, whom I was speaking to before when you when you could hear me, but I couldn't. Hear oh, yes. <laughs> when I dropped you, my daughter is herself a maker. She has a, a company called By Hand London, and her name is Elisa Lex, and she's she sells patterns and she's a maker. So she helped me hugely with all of the. Um, you know, the instructions with ideas, with, with you know, with helping me with final edits, because it was literally such a short time in which to write such a, you know, complicated book in a way. But so maybe hopefully if there is book two, I might have a few more months in which to. Fantastic. I hope there is book two. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> what are you watching on TV right now? Okay, so I've just yesterday finished watching It's a Sin. Oh, which haven't, I haven't couldn't recommend more. I mean, it was absolutely incredibly, especially the level of acting. I mean, I don't go to Twitter. To, I felt like going to Twitter and saying, hey, guys, every single one of you that, that acted in It's a Sin, I am, you know, I'm just, I mean, incredible, incredible work. 
But I also recently watched a, a fabulous documentary. Um, we are doing, for the first time at Fashion Week, um, next week, we're doing with Fashion Open Studio a project on adaptive clothing uh, with this brand called Reset that makes clothing for people with, um, you know, who are differently able. And I watched yeah. this documentary on Netflix called Ava, Ava, um, about the disabled rights movement in the USA. And that, to me, I guess, was a little bit like what the true cost did to people who didn't know about yeah. fashion. This documentary has done to me, opened my eyes about the plight of, you know, disabled and differently abled people mm. in, in society. And, and I, again, it's, it's a very human, very eye-opening, very beautiful documentary. Well, I'll, look, I'll add that to the list as well. Then, what about favourite food and drink? Okay, favourite food, um, we are Italian. So mm-hmm. I have to say, if there is one thing that I have realised in lockdown, the first lockdown, is 100% that my favourite food is pizza. But it has to be pizza <laughs> made by... Uh, you know, homemade pizza. So, you know, in particular, I have to say my my husband is a very, very mean pizza maker, but my children are are pretty happy at that. I adore lentils, always have adored pulses and rice. So that's uh, something that I have to put it firmly within my favorites because it's amongst my sort of um, staple diets. And with drinks, I I like wine. I like good quality, um, possibly biodynamic, wine and no one thing about food obviously two ingredients that i will never live without very very good extra virgin olive oil and coffee in the morning yes same here the coffee yes. well particularly <laughs> but and i'm i'm not just saying this but italian is my favorite food i, I can understand to be honest with you i mean i i veer between italian and japanese and i absolutely adore mexican that's my new well not new i mean by new i mean 10 years but I adore Mexican food. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's hard, you know, being Italian and, and it, our food culture is, is is remarkable. Yeah, it's so good. I had the best meal ever in a really tiny, tiny back street place, restaurant in a teeny square in um, Palermo. Oh, and it was just like about three ingredients, you know, yeah. it was pasta. Everything was really fresh. And yeah. I was just like... No, Sicily is beyond for food. Yeah, it was the best thing I'd ever tasted. I'm not surprised. Talk me through your outfit. What are you wearing today? So right now I'm wearing a pair of um, denim that were bought, red denim. I don't wear blue denim, but these are a pair of red denim that were bought by my youngest daughter um, on Depop, probably. And But she's not wearing them anymore secondhand. They were bought secondhand. And I'm wearing... um, a t-shirt that I adore that is um, silk uh, jersey which is one of my favorite materials and that was made by my cousin in the old days when she was a textile printmaker and she used to make these amazing 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 t-shirts which I, I wear day in day out and have been for 20 years. What are your favorite feel good clothes? So mine is a particular shape and it's the tea dress, the 1940s tea dress, um, which is a very, you know, anyone that knows what a tea dress looks like will know it's, it's, it's just designed in a particular way, slightly tighter around the waist. And then sort of, and it, it's very particular and it is a shape that suits me. Um, so I have several of those, you know, from the 40s vintage. And then when I did have a brand, we took 
one of the, you know, the one that was the best patterns tweaked it and made more with these amazing silks that we found in an old Thai factory that was closing down, you know, ties is in the ties that you wear with, with a shirt. And so I, that, that's a particular shape. I do have a one piece that it is my absolute go-to um, in case of any panic, um, sort of evening, don't know what to wear. And that's my mother's 1970s Bieber jacket, um, which is very, very tight on the waist. It almost feels like a corset. And it's made of this kind of carpet type material. They have, a, they, bizarrely enough, they have the full, you know, it used to be a skirt with trousers. The full outfit is, is in the VNA. And I have the original really? jacket that my mom bought um, in London at Bieber in the 1970s. And that one I can wear with anything, anytime, and it's completely fail-proof. I'm thinking the full outfit, if it is the sort of carpet material, might be a bit warm. For... No, no, it's, 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 not, it's not actually rug material. It's the carpet print. It's like those roses. It's not carpet material. No, it's, it's, like it's, it's like, more like carpet kind of, Oh, lovely, lovely. And what's your style signifier? Do you have something that people think that's very awesome? My necklace. Yeah, my necklace for sure. I've been wearing this necklace, which comes from my mother's side of the family. Um, and I, my mother gave it to me just before I turned 40. And I'm 54, and I haven't taken it off since. And it's a very oh. distinctive necklace. And so I think people, I mean, people recognize my necklace. Um, often, you know, in conferences and, and when we used to be able to travel a lot and meet with a lot of people all the time, my necklace, I noticed sometimes people would go straight towards her. I thought you might say your vintage brooches because you mentioned those in your book and there's a photo of you with all your different brooches. Yeah, but that's not something I wear every day. So my necklace yeah. is on my neck every day, day in, day out, every night. The brooches are very distinctive of uh, my laziness when it comes to, you know, uh, darning or, you know, they're, they're just there to cover up holes. But of course, <laughs> they look like, you know, they look like really wonky military decorations. So when I do wear that jacket, I do feel extremely powerful. Um, and it is a trick, you know, and having mentioned Chenchi, I'm terrified now because that's where I get my brooches. So I think I think I'm <laughs> to go and get a few more before everyone else does because the brooches has been you know, commented on a lot. It is the bloody simplest way to cover up a hole, frankly. And, you know, if it's a pretty brooch, it doesn't matter if you've got it halfway through going down your leg or, you know, somewhere on the back. It doesn't matter. It's a pretty brooch covering <laughs> a hole <laughs> or a stain. And finally, what's the single most important piece of advice you've ever been given? It's two. Um, and, I, and I bounced between one and the other. So the first one was given to me by a man in a fabric shop. And... He told me, sometimes you need to let go to get a better hold. And oh. the second was given to me by uh, a girlfriend, the sister of a girlfriend, and it was trust the void. Oh, what does that mean? To me, it means that when you are in a void, when you don't know what's going on, when you're in the middle of a funnel and you can't see the way out, you have to trust that you're there. And, and trust, mm. not necessarily that you're there for a reason. I'm not so much the for a reason, but trust that what you will learn from being there will be very useful when you're out of it. And what was the first one again, sorry? That sometimes you need to let go to get a yeah. better hold. 
I think that means, you know, that kind of things don't always turn out the way you plan, but then sometimes that means they turn out better. For me, letting go to get a better hold is that sometimes you need to remove yourself from a situation in order to have more control over it. You know, sometimes you need to remove from being the protagonist and let other people make space. And then at the end, that's the positive thing to have done. Sometimes you need to stay silent and, you know, let other people do the talking and then you can get you can get back and, and still own. Sometimes you need to let go of a person in order mm. to find either why you were with them in the first place or to rediscover them later on. Um, mm. You know, things change. Yeah, they do. Oh, Ursula, thank you so much. It's been brilliant, brilliant chatting to you. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Please come back soon. And it'd be absolutely brilliant if you could review the podcast on iTunes and also on that'snotmyage.com. I know that sounds like a lot, but I would appreciate it very much. And don't forget, it's not about age, it's about style.